Screamers and Dragon Riders, and welcome to another Still Smug Book Talk! As ever, it's your scurrilous cutthroat, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, payer of the Iron Price and Lord of Castle Sterling. Today we'll be covering Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 4, The Spoils of War from a Book Reader's Perspective, examining crossover material, book nods, and new information that may inform mysteries book readers have long speculated about. There will be numerous book spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to have events and information from the A Song of Ice and Fire book series revealed to you, now is your chance to tune the fuck out! That being said, show watchers who lust for information like Hot Pie lusts for, well, hot pie, and who don't mind book spoilers are welcome to join us. I'll try to discuss and explain things in a way that non-book readers can follow along to, and maybe your show-watching experience will be enhanced by the book information. Spoilers in five, four, three, two, one. Clocking in at just 50 minutes, the spoils of war was pure excellence. I'm amazed at how the shortest episode of this series may also be the best episode yet. Let's jump right into the book connections. We'll start with a cool little theory about the Cat's Paw Dagger. Basically, the theory is that the Cat's Paw Dagger on the TV show is filling the book role of another Valyrian steel blade, a famous longsword called Dark Sister, legendary from the Targaryen reign. A wiki of Ice and Fire tells us, Dark Sister is a famous Valyrian steel longsword, one of two ancestral swords of House Targaryen, the other being Blackfire. Dark Sister was wielded by at least one woman during its history, and may have been forged for a woman warrior originally, as its slender blade is designed for a woman's hand. The sword is last known to have been wielded by Brynden Rivers. Now this is why we feel that the cat's paw blade in the TV show may be filling the role of Dark Sister from the books. Brynden Rivers, or Bloodraven, was eventually sent to the Wall and joined the Night's Watch. After that, somehow he ended up beyond the Wall and under the tree, and he is the Three-Eyed Raven in the books. So, if he was the last person to wield Dark Sister, whose whereabouts is currently unknown in the books, it's entirely possible that he brought the Valyrian Steel Blade with him to the Wall, like Jor Mormont did, and may have brought it with him beyond the Wall, on his journey to end up as the Three-Eyed Raven. So, in on the TV show, Bran gets this Valyrian steel dagger from Littlefinger and promptly gives it to Arya. The theory is that in the books, Bran will recover Dark Sister from under the tree after the Three-Eyed Raven, Blood Raven, is killed, and that he will give this blade, Dark Sister, to his own Dark Sister, Arya, <laughs> which seems to fit perfectly. The The name of this sword alludes to Arya so well that it just makes sense that it would end up in Arya's hand. And the fact that Bloodraven is at the same place with Bran, and Bloodraven was the last owner of this, store, this sword, highly indicates that this, uh, this theory is, uh, you know, inevitable, that it will occur. So that would be awesome to see. The Cat's Paw Dagger could just be a placeholder on the TV show for the book's dark sister. Wait, what? what's that? 
Oh, you want to hear some more about Dark Sister? Okay. Well, a wiki of Ice and Fire goes on to tell us the sword was in the possession of the Targaryens since before Aegon's conquest. It was known to be wielded by Queen Visenya Targaryen, King Aegon I Targaryen's elder sister and wife, Prince Daemon Targaryen, Prince Aemon Targaryen, the Dragon Knight, and Lord Brynden Rivers, known as Bloodraven. Visenya Targaryen was skilled in the use of Dark Sister, having trained beside her brother, King Aegon I Targaryen, since childhood. After Visenya's death on Dragonstone, the hostage Dowager Queen, Alyssa Valerian, widow of Aenys I Targaryen, was able to escape with her children, taking Dark Sister as well. Prince Daemon Targaryen was knighted at 16, and King Jaehaerys I Targaryen himself gave him Dark Sister for his prowess. Daemon bore the sword thereafter, wielding it in the War for the Stepstones and in a duel to win the hand of Lena Valerian. During the Dance of the Dragons, in the battle above the God's Eye, Daemon leapt from the back of his dragon Caraxes to plunge Dark Sister into the eye of Prince Aemond Targaryen. When Aemond's bones were found some years later in the waters of the God's Eye, Dark Sister was thrust hilt-deep through his eye socket. Prince Aemon Targaryen, the Dragon Knight, was the greatest jouster and swordsman of his age, a knight worthy to bear Dark Sister. And Lord Brynden Rivers bore Dark Sister, though his favorite weapon was a weirwood longbow. It is unknown whether Bloodraven was allowed to take the sword with him when he was sent to the Knight's Watch. The sword's current whereabouts have not yet been revealed. Daemon Targaryen is quoted in the Rogue Prince as saying about Dark Sister, she has a thirst for blood. Only one point of view character in the entire A Song of Ice and Fire universe, as far as I know, has actually seen Dark Sister, and that is Sir Duncan the Tall, Kingsguard to Aegon V, and the Dunk from the Dunk and Egg novellas. Non-book readers may find this quote about Blood Raven from The Sworn Sword interesting. As we know, Blood Raven is the three-eyed raven in the books, but interestingly, he's not the three-eyed raven on the TV show. We know this pretty much definitively after the three-eyed raven told Bran that he'd been sitting in that tree for over a thousand years. But here's a cool quote from the Sworn Sword from Dunk's perspective. The realm was full of lawless men these days. The drought showed no signs of ending, and small folk by the thousands had taken to the roads, looking for some place where the rains still fell. Lord Bloodraven had commanded them to return to their own lands and lords, but few obeyed. Many blamed Bloodraven and King Ares for the drought. It was a judgment from the gods, they said, for the kinslayer is accursed. If they were wise, though, they did not say it loudly. How many eyes does Lord Bloodraven have, ran the riddle Egg had heard in Old Town. A thousand eyes and one. Six years ago in King's Landing, Dunk had seen him with his own two eyes as he rode a pale horse up the street of steel with fifty raven's teeth behind him. That was before King Ares had ascended to the Iron Throne and made him the hand. But even so, he cut a striking figure, garbed in smoke and scarlet, with dark sister on his hip. His pallid skin and bone-white hair made him look a living corpse. Across his cheek and chin spread a wine-stained birthmark that was supposed to resemble a red raven though Dunk only saw an odd-shaped blotch of discolored skin. He stared so hard that Bloodraven felt it. The king's sorcerer had turned to study him as he went by. He had one eye, and that one red. The other was an empty socket the gift Bittersteel had given him upon the red grass field. Yet it seemed to Dunk that both eyes had looked right through his skin down to his very soul. Despite the heat, the memory made him shiver. 
Sir, Egg called, are you unwell? So it's pretty interesting that in the books, Bran is all buddy-buddy with this ominous figure, Blood Raven. It's, uh, it's pretty wild. I wonder what kind of influence this guy is going to have on Bran. And another question arises from the Dark Sister Cat's Paw correlation theory, and that is, may Arya save Jon at some point with the Cat's Paw dagger? The World of Ice and Fire says that on one occasion in 10 AC, Aegon and Visenya were both attacked in the streets of King's Landing, and if not for Visenya and Dark Sister, the king might not have survived. Despite this, the king still believed that his guards were sufficient to his defense. Visenya convinced him otherwise. It is recorded that when Aegon pointed out his guardsmen, Visenya drew Dark Sister and cut his cheek before his guards could react. Your guards are slow and lazy, Visenya is reported to have said, and the king was forced to agree. This event led to the creation of the King's Guard. But this tidbit of info, a sister saving her brother, the king, from regicide, could foreshadow Arya saving Jon, who she thinks is her brother, who's the king in the north, from attempted regicide. So be on the, uh, on the lookout for Arya coming to Jon's rescue with that Valyrian steel blade at some point in the future. All right, our next book crossover is The Field of Fire. Witnessing the loot train attack made my brain recall images of what is probably the most pivotal battle in Westerosi history, what's known today as the Field of Fire. A wiki of Ice and Fire states, The Field of Fire was a major battle during Aegon I's Targaryen's War of Conquest. According to semi-canon sources, the field is located in the northern part of the Reach. Aegon Targaryen, Lord of Dragonstone, landed at what would become King's Landing and began subjugating the Seven Kingdoms. After the submissions of Harrenhal, Crackclaw Point, and Storm's End, Aegon and his sisters, Visenya and Rhaenys, gathered at Stony Sept with their dragons. Most of House Targaryen's soldiers were conscripts from the recently liberated Riverlands. Lord John Mouton of Maidenpool, one of the first lords to come over to the Targaryens, was given command of the Targaryen army. Lorin I, Lannister, King of the Rock, joined forces with Myrn IX, Gardener, King of the Reach, at Golden Grove in an attempt to throw the Targaryen invaders back. Between the two kings, they had roughly 55,000 men, roughly five times as many as the Targaryens, including 5,000 mounted knights. Having brought half as many more men to the battle than Lorin, Myrn commanded the center and his son Edmund led the vanguard. Lorin led the right wing while Lord Oakheart had the left. Lord Manfred Hightower, the Lord of Hightower, heeded the advice of, high, of the High Septon and did not join his liege lord, King Myrn, on the march, and instead kept his forces back at Old Town. The two armies met in the plains south of the Blackwater, near the present Gold Road. While the two kings hoped to flank Aegon and then smash Aegon's center with knights, the Targaryens established themselves in a defensive crescent. The Allies' charge began to break the Targaryen spear lines, but Aegon and his sisters took to the air on their dragons, Beleriand, Meraxes, and Vagar. The dragons began to set the dry field aflame on all sides, especially upwind of the Gardner and Lannister armies. Lord Mouton's Targaryen forces were safely upwind, allowing them to finish off Allied soldiers who emerged from the flame. King Loren rode through the flame to safety when he realized Aegon would be triumphant. The dragons killed 4,000 men of the combined Lannister and Gardner army, among them King Myrn and all of his sons, grandsons, brothers, cousins, and other kin. The knights of the Order of the Green Hand were wiped out. 
Another thousand men perished from the sword and spears and arrows, while ten thousand men suffered burns. Of the Targaryens, less than one hundred were lost, while Visenya took an arrow to the shoulder. One nephew of King Myrn survived the battle, but he died of his burns three days later. When he died, House Gardener died with him. The battle, the only time in Aegon's conquest in which all three Targaryen dragons took to the battlefield at the same time, became known as the Field of Fire. In A Game of Thrones, Tyrion II, Tyrion reflects. His own remote ancestor, King Loren of the Rock, had tried to stand against the fire when he joined with King Myrn of the Reach to oppose the Targaryen conquest. That was close on 300 years ago, when the Seven Kingdoms were kingdoms, and not mere provinces of a greater realm. Between them, the two kings had 600 banners flying, 5,000 mounted knights, and 10 times as many free riders and men-at-arms. Aegon Dragonlord had perhaps a fifth that number, the chroniclers said, and most of those were conscripts from the ranks of the last king he had slain, their loyalties uncertain. The hosts met on the broad plains of the Reach, amidst golden fields of wheat, ripe for harvest. When the two kings charged, the Targaryen army shivered and shattered and began to run. For a few moments, the chroniclers wrote, the conquest was at an end, but only for those few moments before Aegon Targaryen and his sisters joined the battle. It was the only time that Vagar, Meraxes, and Balerion were all unleashed at once. The singers called it the Field of Fire. Near 4,000 men had burned that day, among them King Myrn of the Reach. King Loren had escaped and lived long enough to surrender, pledge his fealty to the Targaryens, and beget a son, for which Tyrion was duly grateful. The World of Ice and Fire further explains, Loren Lannister was captured the next day. The King of the Rock laid his sword and crown at Aegon's feet, bent the knee, and did him homage. And Aegon, true to his promises, lifted his beaten foe back to his feet and confirmed him in his lands and lordship, naming him Lord of Casterly Rock and Warden of the West. Lord Loren's bannermen followed his example, and so too did many lords of the Reach, those who had survived the Dragonfire. Tyrion's conflicted look as he watched the loot train attack reminded me of a passage from A Clash of Kings that highlights Tyrion's conflicted feelings about the Battle of Blackwater Bay and his speculations of Aegon Targaryen's feelings during the Field of Fire. A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 13. Downstream, commoners and highborn captains alike could see the hot green death swirling towards their rafts and carracks and ferries borne on the current of the Blackwater. The long white oars of the Mirish galleys flashed like the legs of maddened centipedes as they fought to come about, but it was no good. The centipedes had no place to run. A dozen great fires raged under the city walls, where casks of burning pitch had exploded, but the wildfire reduced them to no more than candles in a burning house, their orange and scarlet pennons fluttering insignificantly against the jade holocaust. The low clouds caught the color of the burning river and roofed the sky in shades of shifting green, eerily beautiful, a terrible beauty, like dragon fire. Tyrion wondered if Aegon the Conqueror had felt like this as he flew above his field of fire. The furnace wind lifted his crimson cloak and beat at his bare face, yet he could not turn away. He was dimly aware of the gold cloaks cheering from the hoardings. He had no voice to join them. It was a half-victory. It will not be enough. Speaking of Aegon, Daenerys riding Drogon sent images of Aegon riding Balerion over the field of fire through my mind. The World of Ice and Fire says, 
Aegon flew above the ranks of his foes upon Balerion, through a storm of spears and stones and arrows, swooping down repeatedly to bathe his foes in flame. Rhaenys and Visenya set fires upwind of the enemy and behind them. The dry grasses and stands of wheat went up at once. The wind fanned the flames and blew the smoke into the faces of the advancing ranks of the two kings. The scent of fire sent their mounts into panic, and as the smoke thickened, horse and rider alike were blinded. Their ranks began to break as walls of fire rose on every side of them. Lord Mouton's men, safely upwind of the conflagration, waited with their bows and spears and made short work of the burned and burning men who came staggering from the inferno. Doesn't that sound like Daenerys riding on Drogon in this battle? Swooping around, flying above the ranks of his foes, spears and arrows flying past her. Total, total craziness. Really cool to see on screen. I'm just really, really impressed at how well they pulled it off as well. In case you guys didn't know, swords from the Field of Fire were used to construct the Iron Throne itself. The Sworn Sword tells us, Where Watts Wood had stood, they found a smoking wasteland. The fire had largely burned itself out by the time they reached the wood, but here and there a few patches were still burning, fiery islands in a sea of ash and cinders. Elsewhere, the trunks of burned trees thrust like blackened spears into the sky. Other trees had fallen and lay athwart the west way with limbs charred and broken, dull red fires smoldering inside their hollow hearts. There were hot spots on the forest floor as well, and places where the smoke hung in the air like a hot gray haze. Sir Eustace was stricken with a fit of coughing, and for a few moments Dunk feared the old man would need to turn back, but finally it passed. They rode past the carcass of a red deer, and later on what might have been a badger. Nothing lived except the flies. Flies could live through anything, it seemed. The field of fire must have looked like this, Sir Eustace said. It was there our woes began two hundred years ago. The last of the green kings perished on that field, with the finest flowers of the reach around him. My father said the dragon fire burned so hot that their swords melted in their hands. Afterwards, the blades were gathered up and went to make the Iron Throne. This battle, the Field of Fire, resulted in King Torin Stark bending his knee and surrendering the north to Aegon Targaryen, which we talked about in previous Still Smug book talks. A Storm of Swords, Jamie too. Sir Cleos answered, This is the inn of the kneeling man, my lady. It stands upon the very spot where the last king in the north knelt before Aegon the Conqueror to offer his submission. That's him on the sign, I suppose. Torrin had brought his power south after the fall of the two kings on the field of fire, said Jaime. But when he saw Aegon's dragon and the size of his host, he chose the path of wisdom and bent his frozen knees. The world of ice and fire says, When Torrin Stark reached the banks of the trident, he found a host half again the size of his own, awaiting him south of the river. Riverlords, westermen, stormlanders, men of the reach, all had come. And above their camp, Balerion, Meraxes, and Vagar prowled the sky in ever-widening circles. Torin's scouts had seen the ruins of Harrenhal, where slow red fires had burned beneath the rubble. The king in the north had heard many accounts of the field of fire as well. He knew that the same fate might await him if he tried to force a crossing of the river. Some of his lord's bannermen urged him to attack all the same insisting that northern valor would carry the day. Others urged him to fall back to Moat Caelan and make his stand there on the northern soil. 
The king's bastard brother, Brandon Snow, offered to cross the trident alone under the cover of darkness to slay the dragons while they slept. King Torin did send Brandon Snow across the trident, but he crossed with three maesters by his side, not to kill, but to treat. All through the night, messages went back and forth. The next morning, Torin Stark himself crossed the trident. There upon the south bank of the trident, he knelt, laid the ancient crown of the kings of winter at Aegon's feet, and swore to be his man. He rose as lord of Winterfell and warden of the north, a king no more. From that day to this day, Torn Stark is remembered as the king who knelt. But no Northman left his burned bones beside the trident, and the swords Aegon collected from Lord Stark and his vassals were not twisted or melted or bent. Another book reference we have here are Arrows and Scorpions versus Dragons. In A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion Eleven, Tyrion is awaiting the return of Daenerys after she flies off from Daznak's pit on the back of Drogon. The clanker lords had their slave soldiers drilling in the nearest field. The clatter of the chains that bound them made a harsh metallic music as they marched across the sand in lockstep and formed up with their long spears. Elsewhere, teams of slaves were raising ramps of stone and sand beneath their mangonels and scorpions, angling them upwards at the sky, the better to defend the camp should the black dragon return. It made the dwarf smile to see them sweating and cursing as they wrestled the heavy machines onto the inclines. Crossbows were much in evidence as well. Every other man seemed to be clutching one, with a quiver full of bolts hanging from his hip. If anyone had thought to ask him, Tyrion could have told them not to bother. Unless one of those long iron scorpion bolts chanced to find an eye, the queen's pet monster was not likely to be brought down by such toys. Dragons are not so easy to kill as that. Tickle him with these and you'll only make him angry. The eyes were where a dragon was most vulnerable. The eyes and the brain behind them. Not the underbelly, as certain old tales would have it. The scales there were just as tough as those along a dragon's back and flanks. And not down the gullet, either. That was madness. These would-be dragon slayers might as well try to quench a fire with a spear thrust. Death comes out of the dragon's mouth, Septon Barth had written in his Unnatural History, but death does not go in that way. We saw the truth of this passage, for the most part, during this during this battle at the loot train attack, as Drogon uses his underbelly to bounce off all the arrows that they, the, drowned, the ground forces are shooting at him, which were completely useless, just as Tyrion warned. He actually was taken down by the scorpion in this battle, however, but he seemed to be relatively uninjured as he was able to and, uh, land under his own flying power. This raises another interesting question. This was the first time that the Westerosi have seen a living dragon in who knows how long, 100 plus years, 200 years maybe. So that raises the question, um, was the absence of dragons during this time period a coincidence or was there something more sinister at play? In A Feast for Crows, Samuel 5, Samuel is talking to Archmaester Marwyn about the death of Aemon Targaryen, Maester Aemon. Did he? Archmaester Marwyn shrugged. Perhaps it's good that he died before he got to Old Town. Elsewise, the gray sheep might have had to kill him, and that would have made the poor old deers wring their wrinkled hands. Kill him, Sam said, shocked. Why? If I tell you, they may need to kill you too. Marwyn smiled a ghastly smile, the juice of sourleaf running red between his teeth. Who do you think killed all the dragons the last time around? 
gallant dragon slayers armed with swords, he spat. The world this citadel is building has no place in it for sorcery or prophecy or glass candles, much less for dragons. Ask yourself why Aemon Targaryen was allowed to waste his life upon the wall when by rights he should have been raised to Archmaester. His blood was why. He could not be trusted. No more than I can. So this raises an interesting, interesting issue that it seems that the maesters and the citadel have been working, had been working to eliminate dragons and magic. Pretty, pretty wild. We're going to... Hopefully we'll find out some more about this at some point. If not on the shows, then in the books. Yeah, that's right, Loki. Loki's my bird. Our next book reference was the grounded, vulnerable Drogon after being shot with the scorpion, which was remindful of Sunfire, dragon of Aegon II, who was also forced to land in a battle due to a wing injury. A wiki of Ice and Fire tells us Sunfire had gleaming gold scales and pale pink wing membranes, in the sunlight, his scales shone like beaten gold. He is described as being the most beautiful dragon ever seen upon the earth during the reign of King Viserys I Targaryen. As the dragon of King Aegon II Targaryen, Sunfire fought in the Dance of the Dragons. The Dance of the Dragons was a civil war during Targaryen rule of the Seven Kingdoms, a war of succession between Aegon II and his half-sister Rhaenyra over their father Viserys I's throne. The war was fought from 129 AC to 131 AC. It saw the deaths of both rival monarchs and the crowning of Rhaenyra's son, Aegon III. House Targaryen was divided into two factions, the Greens, who supported the ascent of Aegon II as king of the Seven Kingdoms, and the Blacks, who supported the ascent of Rhaenyra Targaryen as queen of the Seven Kingdoms. King Aegon II rode Sunfire during the Battle of Rook's Rest, one of the first major battles of the war in 129 AC. The Greens attacked Rook's Rest to lure the Blacks into a trap. Rook's Rest asked Queen Rhaenyra Targaryen for help, and it was Princess Rhaenys Targaryen who answered the call as she came riding Maelies. Both Aegon II on Sunfire and his brother Aemond Targaryen on Vagar were waiting for one of Rhaenyra's supporters to show up. Though Melees might have had a chance against Vagar alone, the combination of Vagar and Sunfire was too much, and Melees could not survive a two-on-one attack. Whilst Vagar and Sunfire were the victors, Sunfire did not make a clean getaway, as the Golden Dragon was wounded during the battle. He was severely injured and unable to fly, as one wing was nearly torn from his body. Because of his injuries, Sunfire remained near Rook's Rest to be able to heal. The Princess and the Queen describes the following ground attack on Sunfire. Elsewhere in the realm, Lord Wallace Mooton led a hundred knights out of Maidenpool to join with the half-wild cabs and bruins of Crackclaw Point and the Celtigars of Claw Isle. Through piney woods and mist-shrouded hills they hastened to Rook's Rest, where their sudden appearance took the garrison by surprise. After retaking the castle, Lord Mooton led his bravest men to the Field of Ashes west of the castle to put an end to the dragon's sunfire. The would-be dragon slayers easily drove off the cordon of guards who had been left to feed, serve, and protect the dragon. But Sunfire himself proved more formidable than expected. Dragons are awkward creatures on the ground, and his torn wing left the great golden worm unable to take to the air. The attackers expected to find the beast near death. Instead, they found him sleeping, but the clash of swords and thunder of horses soon roused him, and the first spear to strike him provoked him to fury. Slimy with mud, twisting amongst the bones of countless sheep, Sunfire writhed and coiled like a serpent, his tail lashing, sending blasts of golden flame at his attackers as he struggled to fly. 
Thrice he rose, and thrice fell back to earth. Mouton's men swarmed him with swords and spears and axes, dealing him many grievous wounds. Yet each blow only seemed to enrage him further. The number of the dead reached three score before the survivors fled. Amongst the slain was Wallace Mouton, Lord of Maidenpool. When his body was found a fortnight later by his brother Manford, naught remained but charred flesh and in melted armor, crawling with maggots. Yet nowhere on that field of ashes, littered with the bodies of brave men and the burned and bloated carcasses of a hundred horses, did Lord Manford find King Aegon's dragon. Sunfire was gone. Nor were there tracks, as surely there would have been had the dragon dragged himself away. Sunfire the Golden had taken wing again, it seemed, but to where, no living man could say. So Sunfire survived the encounter. Hopefully that means that Drogon will survive his ground attack as well. Our next connection is how Daenerys wants to attack the Red Keep, and Jon warns her against using the dragons in a, a terroristic attack. Danny has the potential to be loved or hated depending on how she decides to utilize her dragon children. Her choice and potential options are remindful of how Maester Aemon recalled how dragons had been both the glory and grief of House Targaryen in A Feast for Crows, Samuel III. Dragons, Aemon whispered. The grief and glory of my house they were. The last dragon died before you were born, said Sam. How could you remember them? I see them in my dreams, Sam. I see a red star bleeding in the sky. I still remember red. I see their shadows on the snow. Hear the crack of leathern wings. Feel their hot breath. My brothers dreamed of dragons, too. And the dreams killed them. Everyone. Sam. Tremble on the cusp of half-remembered prophecies of wonders and terrors that no man now living could hope to comprehend. Or... Or, said Sam, or not. Eamon chuckled softly. Or I am an old man, feverish and dying. He closed his white eyes wearily, then forced them open once again. I should not have left the wall. Lord Snow could not have known, but I should have seen it. Fire consumes, but cold preserves the wall. But it is too late to go running back. The stranger waits outside my door and will not be denied. Steward, you have served me faithfully. Do this one last brave thing for me. Go down to the ships, Sam. Learn all you can about these dragons. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see how Daenerys decides to utilize her fire-breathing demon monsters. And hopefully in the future for House Targaryen, there will be more glory and less grief. Okay, our next book crossover is The Mention of the Golden Company by Cersei when she's talking to Tycho Nestoris of the Iron Bank. What does this mean for the future of the story? Does this mean that certain book elements like Phaegon, the, uh, the alleged Aegon Targaryen, son of Rhaegar, arriving into the story on the show? I doubt it, but it's a possibility. A wiki of Ice and Fire tells us, The Golden Company is a company of sellswords founded by the great bastard Aegor Rivers, known as Bittersteel. They are considered the largest, most famous, and most expensive sellsword or mercenary company in the Free Cities. 
The current Captain General is Harry Strickland. Despite the notorious unreliability of sellswords, the Golden Company is reputed to have never broken a contract. Their motto is, Our word is good as gold. While their war cry, Beneath the gold, the bitter steel, pays homage to their founder. The Golden Company was founded by Agor Rivers, called Bittersteel, a legitimized bastard of King Aegon IV Targaryen after he fled Westeros with the younger sons of Daemon I Blackfire at the end of the First Blackfire Rebellion. When Aegor saw all the exiled lords and knights signing on with other sellsword companies, such as the Ragged Standard or the Maiden's Men, he saw, and he saw the support of House Blackfire ebbing away, he created his own sellsword company in 212 AC, since then, they have fought mainly in the disputed lands. The Golden Company's reputation was quickly established when Kohor refused to honor the contract it had made. The sellswords of the Golden Company sacked Kohor as an answer to Kohor's refusal. The Golden Company is said to be made up of exiles and sons of exiles. They were once headed by Meles the Monstrous, the last of the Blackfire pretenders. Damon Blackfire, a cousin to Meles, fought him over command of the Golden Company. Meles killed Damon by twisting his head until it was torn from his shoulders. During the War of the Nine Penny Kings, Sir Barristan Selmy cut a bloody path right through the Golden Company's ranks to slay Meles in a single combat. As the heirs of Bittersteel, discipline is like mother's milk to the men of the Golden Company. They are able to march quickly after a haphazard and disorganized landing without the chaos that would have inevitably delayed a hastily assembled host of household knights and local levies. The high officers display a rude splendor. Like many in their trade, they keep their worldly wealth upon their person, including jeweled swords, inlaid armor, heavy torques, and fine silks. Many wear a lord's ransom and gold arm rings, with each ring signifying one year's service with the Golden Company. The Captain General's tent is made of cloth of gold and surrounded by a ring of pikes topped with gilded skulls. They prefer to call themselves a free brotherhood of exiles rather than sellswords. So, considering the Golden Company was founded by Blackfires, a rebel branch of legitimized bastard Targaryens who have repeatedly fought true-born Targaryens in attempts to take power, it could give, the, give them incentive to fight against Daenerys Targaryen for the same purpose. So theoretically, having a natural hatred for Targaryens, it could be pretty easy for Cersei to get them on her side and to use them to fight against Daenerys. I bet a lot of people are wondering if this new inclusion of the Golden Company into the plot will mean that they will introduce the character of Aegon as well. As you guys remember, during the sack of King's Landing, Rhaegar Targaryen's children were murdered by the mountain before he raped and killed their mother and Rhaegar's wife, Elia Martell. The youngest child, young Aegon, was just an infant, and the mountain supposedly dashed his head against the wall. But the story in the books is, allegedly, that the baby was swapped out before this happened and brought across the narrow sea to safety, where he's been raised in secret by Westerosi lord and huge Rhaegar fan, John Connington, of Griffin's Roost. The controversy here, however, is that most readers don't believe that this is actually Aegon Targaryen, but considering that he's been propped up and, and pushed by Varys and Illyrio Mopatis his, for his entire life, they speculate that he may actually be a descendant of a Blackfire and being used as a pawn for the next Blackfire Rebellion. Very, very interesting. 
personally, I do not think they will decide to include Aegon in the TV show um, just because there's so little time left. It would feel too deus ex machina to have a major character introduced at this point. And they've already, they're already kind of doing that with Euron, so I do not expect to see Aegon on the TV show. Our next book connection is Jaime's mad dash to try to eliminate Daenerys Targaryen and end the war himself, which was kind of remindful of the story of the little lion from the Sworn Sword. A wiki of Ice and Fire describes the little lion. Sir Wilbert Osgray was the youngest of five brothers and so earned the name the Little Lion in childhood. The Osgray sigil was the Checky Lion. He grew to be a tall, valiant knight. When Giles III Gardener, King of the Reach, was battling the Storm King in the east, the King of the Rock, Lancel IV Lannister, attempted to cut a piece out of the Reach for himself. It fell to Sir Wilbert to stop him with his older brothers off in the east with the King. During the battle, Sir Wilbert came face to face with the King of the Rock. The king had a Valyrian steel sword, Brightroar, and chopped the little lion to bits. But as Sir Wilbert was dying, he drove his dagger into a gap in the king's armor and killed him. The Westerland army collapsed, and the Reach was saved. Here's a quote describing this, the battle from The Sworn Sword, which is one of the Duncan Egg novellas. It was a shield, or what remained of one. That was little enough. Almost half of it had been hacked away, and the rest was gray and splintered. The iron rim was solid rust, and the wood was full of wormholes. A few flakes of paint still hung, clung to it, but too few to suggest a sigil. My lord, said Dunk. The Osgraves had not been lords for centuries, yet it pleased Sir Eustace to be styled so, echoing as it did the past glories of his house. What is it? The little lion's shield, the old man rubbed at the rim, and some flakes of rust came off. Sir Wilbert Osgray bore this at the battle where he died. I'm sure you know the tale. No, my lord, said Bennis. We don't, as it happens. The little lion, did you say? What, was he a dwarf or some such? Certainly not, the old knight's mustache quivered. Sir Wilbert was a tall and powerful man and a great knight. The name was given him in childhood as the youngest of five brothers. In his day, there were still seven kings in the seven kingdoms, and Highgarden and the Rock were oft at war. The green kings ruled us then, the gardeners. They were the blood of old Garth Greenhand, and a green hand upon a white field was their kingly banner. Giles III took his banners east to war against the Storm King, and Wilbert's brothers all went with him, for in those days the checky lion always flew beside the green hand when the king of the reach went forth to battle. Yet it happened that while King Giles was away, the King of the Rocks saw his chance to tear a bite out of the reach. So he gathered up a host of Westermen and came down upon us. The Osgreys were the marshals of the North March, so it fell to the little lion to meet them. It was the fourth King Lancel who led the Lannisters, it seems to me, or mayhaps the fifth. Sir Wilbert blocked King Lancel's path and bid him halt. Come no further, he said. You are not wanted here. I forbid you to set foot upon the reach. But the Lannister ordered all of his banners forward. They fought for half a day, the gold lion and the checky. The Lannister was armed with a Valyrian sword that no common steel can match. So the little lion was hard-pressed, his shield in ruins. In the end, bleeding from a dozen grievous wounds with his own blade broken in his hand, he threw himself headlong at his foe. King Lancel cut him near in half, the singers say, 
But as he died, the little lion found the gap in the king's armor beneath his arm and plunged his dagger home. When the king died, the westerman turned back and the reach was saved. The old man stroked the broken shield as tenderly as if it had been a child. So we definitely have some parallels here with Jamie. A lion rushing headlong at his foe, attempting to kill an enemy king or queen to end a war right then and there. Unfortunately for Jamie, he was not as successful as the little lion. Our next book crossover is a pretty interesting one that most people probably will not pick up on because it's so random. But this is about Torgon the Latecomer and how his story relates to Theon's story. A wiki of Ice and Fire tells us Torgon was the eldest son of King Uragon III Greyiron. When his father died, Torgon had been away raiding along the Mander from his stronghold in Greyshield. His brothers had sent him no word of the king's moot, hoping that one of them would be chosen. However, Urathon IV, good brother, was chosen instead, and he had all of Torgon's brothers killed. When Torgon returned, he denounced the king's moot as unlawful and revolted against Urathon, with the aid of priests, lords, and Urathon's own captains. Although he was not chosen in a king's moot, Torgon ruled for 40 years. He ruled fairly, but the Cape of Eagles was lost to House Malister during his reign. He was succeeded by his son, Uragon IV Greyiron, who also became king without a king's moot. So, in the books, Theon was not present at the king's moot where Euron was chosen to be king. So this applies a little more directly. The son of the previous king, unavailable to be at the king's moot, or not knowing that the king's moot was occurring, and then potentially coming back to take revenge on the usurper and winning the throne for himself. In this case, revenge for Yara could substitute for his motivation, considering he was actually at the king's moot. But it would make sense um, as a sort of parallel that, that Theon would come back and basically kill Euron or end Euron's kingship to claim the throne for himself, just as Torgon the Latecomer did. So that's it for book crossovers, but quickly we'll talk about a couple other little interesting things. We had a couple cool homages. Tyrion's flee, you idiot, line talking about Jaime trying to uh, mentally discourage him from grabbing the spear and lunging at Daenerys was remindful of, of um, Gandalf's famous fly, you fools, line from Lord of the Rings. The loot train also was, looked very similar to old Western movies with the Monument Valley Butte-style um, landscape in the background. And this type of thing has been shown on film for a long, long time. It's a really old tradition in film to have a great robbery of a, of a loot train, essentially. The first one was called The Great Train Robbery and came out in 1903. It's one of the oldest films ever. Look into that. It's pretty cool. And subsequently, there's been dozens and dozens of movies with cowboys attacking trains, etc., things like that. Various trains or processions being robbed. There's also a couple things we didn't mention on the regular show, which I thought would be worth bringing up here. The first one is pride. John is now being told to bend the knee, which parallels the way that John was telling Mance to bend the knee. 
And Mance did not kneel. Mance would not give up his pride. So that may be hinting that John himself will not give up his pride. But then again, Ned Stark did give up his pride and lied about committing treason to save his kids' lives. So there's some interesting parallels with pride and the different choices that people have made, whether to preserve or forget their pride for the benefits of other people, benefit or detriment of other people that they care about. Another interesting parallel is that Drogon's injury may be, you know, may reflect the the injury that Drogo had before he died. Both are injured on the chest slash shoulder, and in Drogo's case, it became infected. And even though he seemed it seemed like a minor wound and he was okay, it ended up killing him. So hopefully. Drogon's injury won't be as severe, and it does look like a pretty minor wound at this point. Hopefully it won't get infected or anything like that. But since Kyburn is the one who commissioned the scorpions to be built, and since he's an expert on poison and figured out what was going on with the mountain and all this stuff, figured out that the, 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 the long farewell was used by Ilaria to poison Marcella, who knows, these bolts could be poisoned. So for all we know, Drogo, Drogon could have been poisoned by that scorpion bolt that flew up and took him out of the sky. All right, that'll wrap up today's installment of Game of Microphones Still Smug Book Talk. Contact me. I want to let you guys all know that I'd be happy to hear from you and encourage you to participate in the show and get your thoughts out here on the air. If you have any questions, theories, ideas, or feedback that would be more appropriate for this spoilery zone of Still Smug than the regular Game of Microphones podcast that involves book info or theories that may relate to the show, please don't hesitate to call in or email us. I'd be happy to include your book-related feedback and questions in Still Smug. If you'd like to call us, you can call us at 813-563-3739. That's 813-JOFFREY. If you'd like to write in, you can email us at game at podcastica.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. And be sure to check out the other great podcasts at podcastica.com. This is Sir Duncan signing off. Thanks, everybody, and Valar Morghulis.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.